How do I do my taxes? What's a credit limit? Where can I find a doctor? When's the best time to move? Who can I ask about all this? And why wasn't I taught how to be an adult? Hi, I'm Kathy. And I'm Genevieve. And, and we're, we're just, just as lost as you are. Come along with us as we journey through the weird, confusing, and sometimes scary world of adulthood. Every week, we'll talk with experts and those who have been there, done that, to answer your questions and ours. And on this edutainment podcast, we'll finally learn how to be an adult. So come on. Enjoy, enjoy the, the Society, society of, of Grown-Ups. Hey listeners, it's Genevieve just hopping on here before the episode starts to give you a trigger warning. This episode contains discussion of alcoholism, addiction, medical trauma, plane crashes, PTSD, repressed memories, self-injury, sexual assault, sexual abuse, and trauma. Please, please take care of yourself. If that means skipping any part of this week's episode or the episode entirely, then do it. Your mental well-being comes first. There's lots of resources in the description as well if you need them. And with that, on to the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Society of Grownups. Welcome to our next episode. It's me, Kathy. And Genevieve. And we're here back at it again to give you a new episode. How have you been? I've been good. Actually, I mean, I've been okay. Um, You know... I appreciate the honesty. You might laugh when I tell you this, but you know the feeling of being sexually frustrated? That's how I feel with Marvel right now. I'm Marvel frustrated. That needs to be a term or something. I'm watching WandaVision and every time they give us something, they take something back and you just have more questions. And there hasn't been a Marvel movie in like forever because, you know, Corona ruined everyone's lives. So that's where I'm at. I'm Marvel frustrated and I just want to binge watch everything and watch a fucking Marvel movie. That's all I want in 2021. So how are you? (laughs) Honestly, it's like really been a week for me. Um, I've been like pretty stressed and tired and just not sleeping well. I've been having the whole, what am I doing with my life monologue in the back of my head. What is a quarter life crisis? Yeah. Which is the reason we made the show. Um, (laughs) I'm like not in the best headspace right now. I've been like doing lots of stuff to try to keep busy and I've been FaceTiming with a lot of friends. So that's been helpful. Don't, don't forget to take care of yourself, girl. Amen. I have been, don't worry. But I was super excited to have this interview and that was part of what was keeping me going this week. So our guest today, I'm so excited to bring on. I have known her personally for 11 years. She is a family advocate at a child advocacy center in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. She's also a survivor and has spoken all over the U.S. telling her story, her way of healing, and what's helped her. So we brought her on today to talk all things trauma and therapy because you know, adult shit isn't all taxes and laundry and cooking. Yeah, and self-care is not all bubble baths and lush bombs and everything. As you know, there was a trigger warning before this episode. So take a listen to that if you think you'll have any issues with this. So without further ado, we would like to welcome Melanie Sachs. Hey, everybody. I'm Melanie. Um, It's such an honor to be here with you. I've known Genevieve for a long time, and it's really cool to kind of live our lives full circle to this moment, pretty much. (laughs) Um, I am 29. I live in Massachusetts, and I am a family advocate, um, soon to be forensic interviewer of children um, and adolescents who have experienced some type of severe physical abuse, child sexual abuse, witness to domestic violence, or child sexual sexual exploitation, otherwise known as human trafficking. 
trafficking. So right now, um, my role is to walk families um, through our process and any process they have to go through. I grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, I went through my own journey through child sexual abuse. So I've gone through a lot of different levels of my journey, I, would, I guess I would say. And it's been, it's been a long road to get where I am, but I'm really grateful to be where I am today. Thanks so much, Mel. Our first couple of questions are basically just kind of understanding trauma. So how would you define trauma and are there different types of trauma? Everyone goes on a different journey when they've experienced trauma. Um, There's different kinds of trauma. You know, the few kinds that I've experienced are sexual trauma, medical trauma, and kind of family systems trauma, I guess I would say, um, with kind of how I grew up and Um, my parents' marriage and divorce and my dad's alcoholism, um, but also the sexual abuse would be that sexual trauma. Um, And then medical trauma later on, um, as I was trying to navigate the medical system after what happened to me with some issues that I had years later growing up. So those are the kinds that I've experienced, but I know that that is not an exhaustive list. I know many other people who've dealt with different other kinds of trauma could be, you know, dating relationship trauma, trauma from addiction, trauma from other medical situations. Um, I volunteer at a camp where families have lost a child. So that's a whole nother type of trauma. Um, trauma of kids um, going through um, cancer or other illnesses there. So that's another type of trauma that I'm familiar with, but I also know there's many others that I may not be familiar with. Definitely. And um, also a lot of times with trauma comes triggers. Can you explain what is a trigger is, and is there a difference between being triggered and being uncomfortable? Triggers is kind of a word that gets thrown around a lot. You know, this is a trigger. This is triggering me, you know, and I think sometimes it can be misconstrued as just like kind of a joke or something that is um, maybe very surface level. That word is used to describe, Um, but it's a very real thing for survivors of um, sexual abuse. Um, And I'm going to speak a lot about that specifically just because that is my experience. But, you know, survivors of that of any type of trauma, um, we all have um, really deep triggers and it's not just a word to be thrown around. By definition, triggers can be something that you, you know, I went through sexual abuse like 16 years ago and there's still things in my body that remember, like if someone does something very similar to what he did, or if there's a smell um, that's very similar to what it smelled like, or if there's a season that it was happening in, you know, those types of things can be really triggering for survivors. Um, especially even right now during a global pandemic, triggers are very, very high right now for survivors of sexual violence. And you may think like, what does that have to do with the pandemic? What does that have to do with an illness? You know, but I think the underlying issue is that survivors are feeling trapped inside their homes, maybe even being trapped within a place where there's unhealthy people. Um, In addition to that, mask wearing can be very triggering. For me, I had a hand over my mouth during my sexual assault. So in the beginning, having to wear a mask was something that was triggering for me even 16 years later initially. And so I think triggers can come just like other things in all forms. You know, it's really important to be careful of where you use that word and how you use it, because I think it is has a very deep and real meaning for survivors of certain kinds of trauma. I always get really upset when people... I think the word trigger can be overused a lot. And I get really upset when I hear, you know, the bed's not made and they'll be like, I'm triggered. My, my, I'm triggered. I'm triggered or something super little, or they don't get what they want, or they'll use it as a joke. I don't know. I've heard that so much. And I always say something, I'm kind of like, you know, that's typically used for people who 
have trauma or it stems an anxiety attack or something like that. I don't know. It just, it just pisses me off when I hear that word thrown around, especially in a humorous way. In some ways, some people find it a joke, which is a little bit crazy because if you've never experienced it, how can you belittle it? You know what I mean? I think that's, you know, all about educating people. I think sometimes we can get really mad when people use things incorrectly. But again, if they don't know, they don't know. So I think there's a balance of like, are you kidding me? (laughs) But there are other times as opportunities to educate people about these issues in a, in a way that won't turn them away from it, but will actually turn them the other way to look at it and consider it next time, you know? And so really empowering others to um, be that voice, even if they haven't experienced it. Another thing that can get thrown around a lot is PTSD or rather post-traumatic stress disorder. So how would you define PTSD and what are some signs that you, like the plural you, may be experiencing it? Yeah, so PTSD is another um, kind of, I guess you would say like a symptom of trauma or um, something that a lot of people with trauma experience. And this is where my story goes off in kind of two different directions. You know, as a child growing up in an alcoholic home, I experienced that um, when doors would slam, when people would yell at each other, especially with my, my parents' divorce. But that was honestly, for me, that was a pretty minor experience of PTSD. I didn't even know it was that at the time. I was pretty young, so I, w- I wouldn't have really categorized it as that. But when I started to learn what PTSD really felt like um, on an extreme level after the sexual abuse and sexual assault, I had two instances of abuse at Uh, very young. And then again, at 12 years old, uh, the PTSD, um, we talked about that kind of trigger and like those flashbacks, like that, those body memories, those kinds of things. Um, PTSD is kind of like the overarching umbrella of that. So uh, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, It can come in many forms like anxiety attacks, panic attacks, similar things to that, like sound and sight, your body remembering. Um, flashbacks are a big part of um, PTSD. Um, you know, they talk a lot about it in like combat for veterans when they come back, if they hear fireworks. Um, I'm sure there's other examples, but that's the only one I can think of because I've never been in combat. But um, it is a similar way as if you hear a sound, it can bring you right back to that moment. It can bring you right back to that feeling in your body. You could actually re-experience what happened to you, even if it's not happening in that moment. Um, You'll have memories come back, um, different things. Um, I know for me, I had uh, repressed memories come back through kind of PTSD and, you know, remembering a situation from my childhood when I drove by the street randomly when I was an adult. The other experience I've had with PTSD, I was in a plane crash in 2016. So walking away from a very extreme, very different from what I went through as a child, very connected to PTSD though, um, when I would drive by like the the airport, or if I go on a flight now, my body and brain remembers the fear. So when the plane lands, I really, I do have that experience of PTSD. Of course, over time, it has lessened because I've been able to face it head on, get help for it, and really just kind of have my little routine that helps me um, kind of push away those PTSD symptoms. But it, it still is there underlying. And I think that's important 
to recognize that even if someone is like 15 years out or they've dealt with it well, it can come back at any time or it can intensify at any time. And so I think just um, having awareness about what it is and how it can manifest. And those two examples are not the only ways that it can happen for someone, especially depending on their type of trauma, so. I'm so sorry you had to go through all that. I just wanted to say, you mentioned that you've come a really long way with it. What advice would you give to someone who's working through PTSD or through an assault and is just trying to find a way to come through terms with it? I would say first and foremost, you're not alone, that there's people out there that will believe you and support you. And if you've tried and they haven't, keep trying, don't give up. The second thing I would say is face it head on, get help as soon as you feel like you can, because there were a lot of years where I kind of denied help or asked for help in some areas and didn't want help in other areas. Um, And now that I have this kind of full picture of wholeness and healing, um, I can see the times along the way where um, getting help on a certain thing would have been really helpful earlier on. I'm not everybody healing is not linear. So um, I'm not shaming myself or anybody else that waits to get help for certain things. But I just would say from experience now that I can see the whole picture um, that there is no shame in getting help. It doesn't matter if it's been five minutes or five years. Um, you deserve help. You deserve healing. And there's no shame. Um, I know there is a stigma. That is a very real thing for people. But I definitely want to kind of cut down that belief of shame because it's a lie. And, you know, I think there's um, such value in getting around people that have also experienced it. So if you can surround yourself, um, Genevieve and I have had, you know, that kind of solidarity with people who've been through things that we've been through. And that's how we met in a group like that. So I think really encouraging people to get around other, whether it be survivors of sexual trauma or, um, kids of alcoholics or, you know, adults who've experienced a family member with um, alcoholism or any, there's plenty of things out there. So looking into those resources, looking into your local resources, but don't stop at local. There's other national resources, especially now that we're all virtual. There's so much more being put out there um, and a lot more online platforms, um, which can be not as scary for some people to jump onto things online. And um, again, I would preface that in, in the work that I do is be safe about it. We don't want anyone having secondary trauma from going through something online as well, um, because there are people out there that don't have the right intentions when they're online. So, but overall, I would just say that, um, you know, fight to have yourself know that it's not a shameful thing to ask for help and that there is a lot of help out there. A lot of times we can suffer, and I've heard this term before, terminal uniqueness, thinking that we are the only ones who have ever felt this way or been through it. And, you know, I've met a lot of people and heard a lot of stories of different traumas or things people have been through and stuff is so much more common than we think especially with sexual trauma and sexual assault and abuse because a lot of times we only hear about what's reported or brought up we may not even hear about stuff that's never reported or that people don't realize with sexual assault like I've heard so many stories, particularly from my male friends or males in my life and they'll say a situation and I'm like you know, that wasn't consensual, right? I'm like, wow, they don't even realize that could technically count as assault or harassment. And obviously I don't want to identify anything for anyone or put any words in anyone's mouth. So usually I just keep it to myself, but we really don't realize how common trauma 
is. You know, you have kind of been on both sides of it. You've experienced sexual assault and sexual abuse, but you also work with people who have experienced it as well. So in terms of witnessing violence and violent crimes and being the uh, victim of a, a sexual assault or sexual crimes, what is the process of reporting that crime? Because I know some people can get closure for it or it helps them with the healing process, but I know, and it's different from Canada and Massachusetts and varies state by state, but is there sort of a general process? And sometimes victims say that reporting the crime is as traumatic as the crime itself. So kind of jumping off that, what do you think our law system and overall as a society should do to support reporting those crimes better? Absolutely. I could talk for days about this, <laughs> but, um, you know, so first I'll uh, answer the question about what is the process before we can get deeper than that. Um, the process can look different depending on how old you are when you report the crime. For me, I was going through it as a child. So someone told someone who told someone else who reported it to Child Protective Services, DCF or CPS depending on where you live. Um, and then in turn, they started, they opened an investigation. I was brought as a child to a child advocacy center who usually serves kids from ages around two to 17. That's what our center um, covers for age range. Um, and that is um, any allegation of all those crimes I listed at the beginning, um, child sexual abuse, severe physical abuse, sexual assault, teen dating, sexual assault, witness to domestic violence and trafficking or sexual exploitation. You know, those, those cases from two to 17 would come in to the Child Advocacy Center. Uh, then there would be a child-friendly forensic interviewer who would be trained to interview children. They would then work with law enforcement and child protection if they needed to be there for the interview. Sometimes those people are the interviewers, are trained for, as forensic interviewers very different depending on where you go. So I can't make that super um, exhaustive, but, um, and then, you know, the family would be brought into the CAC, Child Advocacy Center. There's over 850 across the country and there's a start internationally as well. And what would happen is, um, you know, myself as the advocate, that's what I do now. Um, I'm not an interviewer yet, but that is my next career goal. So I walk through the family through the process from the second they walk through the door. So when they come in, I get them settled in our waiting room. I'll try to get a visual of this verbally because um, it is a podcast, but they walk into our waiting room. It's very comfortable. Um, it's, it's a house. Not everyone looks like ours, but it's all that kind of same goal is to make it as comfortable for the family as possible. Um, so we have like a living room set up with like a play kitchen for kids to play with. We have a playground outside and that's how, that's where we start, start the process, building rapport with the child or teenager, kind of asking them how they are, you know, where did they come from school or how's school going? Do you play any sports? Just kind of building that rapport. And then the interviewer will get the child, um, and again, everything is voluntary. So having the child come into the room, if they step into the room and say, I'm not doing this, they're not doing it today. And so it's really empower empowering process, but sometimes getting there is really hard because there can be a lot of tricky steps to get to land at a child advocacy center. 
um, with law enforcement and different other agencies. So we really make sure that our team works cohesively together to make sure the family is well taken care of and believed when they bring something to their attention. And then, you know, we go from there with um, doing the forensic interview. It is recorded for law enforcement to write their report. And then the team will meet with the family after the interview. And that team consists of a medical forensic nurse um, who can do evidence collection on kids under 12. Over 12 kids go to the ER, but then can have a follow-up with us at the Advocacy Center to make it really child-friendly and um, to build rapport with a medical provider. We also have a mental health coordinator on site who coordinates all mental health services, counseling, um, mentors, anything like that. Um, my role as a family advocate is to follow up with the family over time. So two weeks out and then up every month for a year out or more um, because cases can take a really long time. So I'm following up with the family for anything from uh, sports camps to help them with that, to get kids involved in things that contribute to their healthiest outcome to getting them clothing or food resources or housing resources that they may have lost as a result of, you know, maybe the person that abused the child was the person who brought home the money, you know, and those types of things. And then we'll be in touch with them over time. And once our door is open, it's a revolving door, they can come back. Um, even if it's been five years and they need a resource, they can come back. And um, I support the family through the court process. I'm there for trials, restraining order hearings, anything like that um, for kids ages two to 17. Again, it changes depending on when you report. So if you are an adult reporting something that happened to you as a child, that's a little bit of a different process because at the advocacy center, we only see kids two to 17. So for example, when I was 12 years old, I went to the child advocacy center for what happened when I was 12. I later had memories of stuff happening when I was nine to 11 years old by two other perpetrators. And I had the option. I did not choose to report that specific incident. I had already gone through so much. I had gone through a trial um, for what happened when I was 12. So there was just a lot there. Um, and I didn't need it for my healing at the time. And I think that's something important. I'm going to stop there before I go further, that everybody's healing journey and reporting journey is different. And it's okay. Okay, whatever it looks like for you. I have experience on both sides of the coin. I, I did report something. Well, something was reported for me when I was a child. And this other situation that happened when I was a child, I chose not to report it. So, you know, I just want any survivor that may be listening out there to know that whatever your journey looks like is okay. And you're validated in that journey at any point. You know, as an adult, I did check into what my options would be to report. And basically that would be, um, you'd be interviewed at a police station as an adult survivor um, with a detective um, and they would make the report directly rather than going through the child advocacy center. And I think this is where a lot of survivors struggle. The child advocacy center model is really child friendly, victim focused law enforcement. Again, it's back, it's back to what we talked about earlier. They're not necessarily trained in how to talk to survivors. They're trained in how to interview perpetrators. So we can't necessarily always, um, and I've learned this, you know, not everyone's going to be able to get to this place because they don't see the positive side of law enforcement, law enforcement necessarily, but because I've worked with them extensively, a lot of them do have a heart, you know, like I, I 
I see a lot of things out there about, um, and it breaks my heart when a survivor does not have a good experience with law enforcement because I've seen the other side of it that survivors that have had incredible support from law enforcement. So I think there is, you know, a benefit to being, I hate to say it this way, but to be a child when this happens and it being reported because you do get kind of held by the child advocacy center model up to 17 years old. Um, but outside of that, um, I've seen some amazing, amazing detectives out there do an amazing job with adult survivors. So don't give up. There'll be someone out there that you'll click with and you'll be able to have them walk on your journey with you. Those are really the kind of two perspectives that I have on that. Um, but if there's any follow-up questions, I can answer further. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned um, advocacy centers. So what exactly are they? So child advocacy centers were an at, like kind of came to life in, I believe, the late 1980s. They originated in Huntsville, Alabama. There was a group of uh, prosecutors and detectives and law enforcement and a couple other um, professionals in the field that were um, seeing these kids come into court and them had they had already talk to eight different people about what happened to them. And so they were being re-traumatized. Their stories were changing, even though they knew that the child was telling the truth. It was just, they told eight different people eight different times about what happened to them. And the details got confusing, especially for if you're thinking about like a six-year-old or like an 11-year-old, like even us as adults, like if you had to tell your story eight times, there's going to be details that are going to change small or large, you know? And so um, they decided we have to do better for these kids and these families. And there's no follow-up for services. They're just kind of like brought in, brought out, and then we don't know what happens, you know? And there was no like follow-up counseling. So this model came to life, um, the Child Advocacy Center model. Um, and again, like I said earlier, there's over 900, I think now, I said 850, but I think it's closer to 900 across the country. And I think there are a handful internationally as well. You know, they call them different things like um, family justice centers or child advocacy centers um, and, or uh, child trauma centers. There's all different names for them. It's called a multidisciplinary approach to responding to child abuse and neglect. And so it has all the facets that I just talked about, mental health, family advocacy, coordination of services with the multidisciplinary team outside the agency, such as law enforcement, DCF, getting families connected to those agencies in a positive way, um, in addition to medical services and um, care coordination, case management. In addition, um, we do have an education and outreach coordinator who goes out into the community and educates people about the Child Advocacy Center model in our community specifically about us. Every other child advocacy center has this role as well usually and just educating and empowering people to come forward and knowing that they'll be believed and supported. Oh my gosh, I wish this like podcast could be three hours. <laughs> so much I, I want to talk to you about. I know. Um, so we hear a lot about different ways to get help. So where can people find help to deal with their issues, any sort of trauma or anything like that, and sort of what resources are available, whether it's long-term, short-term, any of that. Some of the main resources that I can point you to are child advocacy center base. You know, there's the National Children's Alliance, which can connect you to a local child advocacy center in your area. There is also um, domestic violence and sexual assault um, organizations. If you go, if you just Google that, like uh, Sexual Assault Crisis Center, Domestic Violence Crisis Center, those are for adult survivors. And then the Child Advocacy Center, National Children's Alliance, National Child Advocacy Center. In addition to, I know we haven't really talked about it yet more specifically, but there's a 
type of therapy that I went through for all the trauma I endured um, called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, EMDR. Um, and there's resources, there's a national resource that can connect you with a EMDR therapist in your area. Um, so that's a, that's a really great resource. In addition to like psychology today, that's where I found some therapists that I've seen. In addition to the Child Advocacy Center and the uh, Rape Crisis or Domestic Violence Crisis Center, you know, models that are out there as well. There's resources um, in your community, um, some more na uh, national organizations if you would like wanted to get involved or want to get more help. Genevieve and I are very familiar with um, Al-Anon, Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are national organizations that you can get connected to in your community, in addition to kind of more national organizations that, or even international, to write love on your arms, in addition to a couple organizations that I'm involved with, PAVE, which is Promoting Awareness, Victim Empowerment, and a couple other organizations regarding human trafficking, Written on Your Heart, um, Rebecca Bender, Elevate Academy, and Jasmine Grace Marino with Bags of Hope Ministries. So there's all different places you can get connected to people and connected to other survivors. There's a lot of survivor leaders out there doing this amazing work and have organizations that will wrap their arms around you, whether it be in getting help or um, getting involved in advocacy. Do you recommend trying therapy as kind of dipping your toe in the water? And do you know if there are any lower cost options for therapy or healing programs? Because, you know, I know cost and income can be an issue, especially now during the pandemic. So yeah. just to make sure people of all incomes and financial situations can get help. Yes, absolutely. So um, I can speak from my own experience. When I was younger, I was not, I did not like going to therapy, but I eventually sought it out for myself. You know, there's all different, um, especially through like for specific things, like through rape crisis centers, sometimes they do have free counseling. I know we have a local organization here that does not charge anyone or bill their insurance. Um, so looking for those resources specifically, um, I don't know if there's like an overarching resource for that, but definitely um, making that known if you do call someone, like, can you get me in contact with someone who wouldn't bill my insurance? And in addition to that, um, there's a lot of like support group based help out there that is free. Like, for example, um, like Alateen or Al-Anon, you know, those are free things uh, for families and kids to get involved in. Um, in addition to that, I know there's many, many other organizations. Um, if you have reported what happened to you, um, there is often a program called Victims Compensation where you live. And um, unfortunately, it does have to be if you reported it, um, but it doesn't have to have ended up somewhere as long as you reported it to law enforcement. Um, you may be able to open a claim, um, especially if, I mean, when I was a child, it was opened under my mom. But when I was an adult, I went back and um, asked to reopen my claim for more therapy that I needed. I was able to get like $10,000 over 10 years to pay for therapy. So um, it was a reimbursement initially, and then it ended up being directly paid. So um, there's many different options. Um, definitely get connected with like an advocate in your area, whether it be like a rape crisis advocate or um, even just like a social service advocate um, can probably help people. Um, you know, or local mental health agencies might be able to really help you navigate that system um, because it can be really complicated. And, you know, to find out who does or doesn't um, just ask the question, you know, I think 
you know, there's something that's really cool about, um, you know, we are not all called to a platform, but we're called to use our voice. And that doesn't just have to be sharing our stories that can be getting help for ourselves or for someone else that we love and care about. So that was so beautifully said as well that, you know, our voices isn't always meant to be on a platform, but we are the voices for ourselves. I mean, I'm just excited I get to share Mel with the world because I've known her (laughs) wisdom and inspiration for like 11 years now. So I'm like, yeah, I knew this before everyone. I was like a Mel hipster before everyone. (laughs) Um, And I'm on the Mel train now. And now you're on the Mel train. Yay. Buckle up. Yeah. (laughs) So one thing that you keep mentioning is healing is not a linear process. So when you're healing, is there... Is there any sort of marker for it? How do you know the work that you're doing is working? I love that question. I think it's so important to honor the fact that healing is not linear. Um, I think it looks different for everybody, but there is also something that is like an indicator for me is like a shift. So whether it be a shifting in how I feel, whether it's a shifting in how my body feels, whether it's a shifting in how I feel mentally or how I feel stress-wise. My friend was talking about this earlier on an event that we were, she was doing live and um, she's a survivor as well. And she was talking about how, you know, back when she was kind of in the thick of her trauma, um, something little like paying a bill was so extra stressful and like traumatic. Like it just got lumped into all the trauma. And so I think an indicator for me is that when, you know, even small things or frustrating things come up, it doesn't lump into my trauma. It's kind of a separate entity rather than it all feeling like too overwhelming all at once, like everything's awful. Even if it's like you have the money, you can pay the thing. You just have to get on the computer and do it. You know, when that doesn't feel overwhelming, you know, I know I'm kind of on a right track and then can grow from there. Um, so I think overall it's a shifting is feeling a shifting in how things used to be to the way that they are now or the way that you want them to be. Um, so I think that would be my answer to that question. Kind of getting a bit more personal. What are some things that you personally do in your everyday life to work through and deal with trauma? You know, yes, therapy is great or whatever they choose is great, but it's also the work you do when you get out of the therapy office or when you get out of the police station or where you when you get out of the hospital or church service or meeting or whatever people do for therapy. So what do you do in your everyday life? Yeah, I think that idle time is crucial because what we do with it is really either contributes to or holds us back from healing. And I think for me, um, lots of beach walks. I live by the ocean in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So I know that I'm not doing well when I'm not doing that. You know, when I'm not getting motivated to get outside, get to the beach, which, you know, is just something small. I'm and so can- jealous. I wish I had the beach. <laughs> I miss the beach so much. Sorry to interrupt. I miss the well, beach so much. Over, girl. Ontario people are like, oh, Lake Ontario is the beach. Lies and fairy tales. It's not. It's not. <laughs> the ocean. Come and fight me. I will fight anyone that yeah. says that. Okay, Anyways. but there's like, I feel like there's two different kinds of beaches. You have your beach beach and then you have your wannabe beach. No, you have your beach you know? beach and then you have a lake and sand. That's what you have. <laughs> there's no middle ground. No I agree. Middle ground. 
Cape Cod girl will fight fight for that for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I, yeah, I'm a Toronto gal, so um, yeah. oh god, I just said Toronto gal, but to me that was the beach. And then when I actually finally touched the Pacific Ocean, I'm like, holy shit! Yeah, this is Cape the Cod ocean. girl. You here. can't go back, Cape Cod girl. Yeah, here. exactly. <laughs> There's okay. an ocean on every corner. So it really is. It's beautiful where mm-hmm. she is. After a counseling appointment, or after a doctor's appointment, or after. Um, I went through a really rough year and a half recently of treatment for an injury that I obtained during my sexual assault when I was 12, but didn't deal with until two years now almost. And um, the ocean was my solace. You know, I would have these really awful appointments where I felt terrible, nauseous, um, had an internal injury from one of my assaults. And so um, it was a very intense process of healing after I had felt I already healed. And so just getting back to the ocean was always my grounding place. In addition to that, I would say my new thing is like modeling and selling jewelry. Um, I started a new business and it's super like fun and super not deep at all, <laughs> you know, because my daily work is super deep and super intense. And so looking at and sharing sparkly things with friends is Definitely something that has been helpful lately to kind of, you know, hold me over in between intense things that may be happening or just like something to shift my focus to. Um, And I think that's the thing is it can become really dark if we focus on our trauma all the time. And I think there's been certain periods in my life where I've fallen into that. Um, in extreme ways. And I also, it's a tricky thing because I do it all day for work and then I lived it. So like it really, there really is no in-between for me. And so I've had to find ways to make their, make, make way for an in-between um, to kind of take me out of that kind of trauma place, whether it be personally or what they call like vicarious trauma, which is you feel the trauma of other people um, because you're walking beside them. Um, so my own trauma coupled with the vicarious trauma of walking other people through their own trauma Um, Like how many times can I say trauma, but you know, I've had to find things for the in-between. So the ocean, sparkly jewelry, in addition to that, writing has been a huge thing for me. So whether it be writing a blog or just typing something in my phone, writing a poem or speaking a poem while I'm driving, for me, I have a really strong faith. So listening to worship music and um, just kind of like getting my heart somewhere else, you know, I think this can impact your heart really really a lot, Um, whether you're a survivor of trauma, gone through trauma, or work with people who have trauma, um, it can really kind of go deep within you. And it can kind of, you know, keep you in this dark place. But I constantly pay attention to the light, I think really shifting my focus to the light in all ways in between even in the midst of walking people through things or going through my own um, trauma healing. Um, Again, it's not linear, it's peaks and valleys. But I think, you know, and in every season, my like self care plan can look different. So, you know, something that may have worked for me years ago at 12 will not work for me now. Part of my self care when I was 12, and this is a Canada reference, so you're ready for this was de- hey. watching Degrassi. Okay. <laughs> so that was my favorite show. And like that wouldn't work for me now. Like that just wouldn't do it. I mean, I adore it and will always hold it special in my heart and had always dreamed to meet all the people. But again, like, you know, there are some episodes of that show that are very directed to trauma. And so like, that's, you know, I, I was so desperate to not feel alone back then that that was part of my self-care and healing. But, but now I know I'm not alone. I've cultivated a community around me that lets me know I'm not alone. So I don't need to turn to TV to find that. And so that's just a difference as to like, you know, and for me now that looks like getting together with people who I know get it in person or virtually. 
<laughs> these days, but, um, you know, I don't rely on a TV show to give me that solace. And so I think it, it changes over time. It doesn't mean that it was wrong for me to find my solace in Degrassi when I was 12 um, in Law and Order SVU as well. But I think we have to gauge ourselves over time. I can't watch SVU anymore because I do it all day. I lived it and I don't need to do that in my free time. You know, yeah. again, I'll always love it. I'm always going to aspire to be Mariska Hargitay and Sergeant Benson, you know, she but, really um, like for yeah. reference people like she really is, though. Yeah. Well, that but, is a huge compliment, but um, <laughs> yeah, that but, yeah. is a lot of emotional labor to to live it and to hear it constantly. Yeah. So, yeah. So really, like the fluffy things are important to me now, like selling jewelry, going to the ocean, reading a book, mm-hmm. doing nothing. That's a new thing, which is totally out of my comfort zone speaking out about crushing comfort zones, this girl could not sit still ever. And that's actually been something super healing for me recently. And that's like the one thing when people are like, you have to take something positive out of this pandemic. If I have to, that's going to be the thing is that I've slowed down like almost like 150%. Like I do a lot of things still and people are like, I'm tired even with your pandemic schedule. But so my fiance now, I just got engaged. My fiance, again, something I never thought would happen. Congratulations. Thank you. Something I never thought would happen because I thought my trauma marked me for life, right? And now I'm in a place where like this dream is coming true. I've healed so much, even with him. You know, he was there during... Um, the past year and a half when I've walked through this, but um, he has a very different lifestyle than I do. His is very low key and chill. Like I am just a connector and I'm a social butterfly. And like, he's like kind of the opposite. Like he's very introverted. He's very chill, but I've grown to appreciate kind of his introversion and to try to take some of it on because I think it is for this time in my life, that is self-care for me is to slow down, um, to set that boundary for myself to say, hey, you don't have to do even one thing today. Forget the three you already had in your head, you know? Um, So giving myself permission to slow down, even halt and just, just be present because I fought so hard to be present. Trauma can make you the opposite of present. And that's where I've been most of my life. Um, so I really just want to be present and just kind of be in the moment, enjoy my time with him, not um, be rushing so much or doing so much that I forget to enjoy the joy in the midst. I love what you said about finding the sparkle and the joy because I think so often and as important as mental health and self-help and therapy and all that is you need to take a break otherwise you're just going to be so overwhelmed like you need to take a walk you need to watch a stupid reality tv show or Mm -hmm. bake or do something that brings you joy like that's so important because otherwise you'll just drown in it I know for me my hashtag you know, I'm out of here for a minute or my joy, my sparkle is baking RuPaul's Drag Race and coloring. That's (laughs) what I do. (laughs) But I also think it is the little things in life that make life worth living. You know what I mean? I can't imagine life without my shitty reality shows. I can't imagine life without walks in the beach or, you know, FaceTime calls or binging WandaVision on Disney Plus, which... I don't know if you guys are watching, but I'm kind of losing my mind. Kevin's Um, watching it. So I'm (laughs) therefore watching it through him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really important. And especially when 
so many people do such hard work in their own personal life. And then whether it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, childhood trauma or therapy, but Mm -hmm. I mean, even being a doctor, especially right now is special and traumatic or a nurse or a teacher, you know, I mean, teachers see, you know, pre pandemic, you see all kinds of trauma and you don't even get to get into the nitty gritty of it, you know, and you really got to just like detach and do something that brings you joy. I always say that the little things are the big things. And that's been like my thing the past couple of years is the little things are the big things. That's the title. And- Hang on. I'm writing that down. <laughs> um, you know, something that you just brought to my attention, Genevieve, is like, you know, along with all those like doctors, teachers, the kids, the kids aren't being able to be kids. And that, yeah, that has been something for me, like going back to like being a kid, you know, as an adult, like childlike faith and like doing childlike things, like eating dinosaur chicken nuggets and a juice box for dinner, or like, you know, getting outside drawing with, um, listen, even doing that as an almost 26 year old, if that's that's my joy that day, that's me finding my joy. That's what I'm saying. Find your joy in, in dino shaped chicken nuggets, honestly. And like coloring (laughs) with chalk outside and like, you know, so I feel for, I mean, there's trauma now for kids that would have never had trauma because they're not being able to be kids. And so I think we, you know, don't take that lightly and anytime we can you know find that little bit little spark of joy that little sparkle whatever brings sparkle to your eye whatever brings you laughter whatever brings you happiness in the midst you know that's what we're we're aiming for and um you know for me it's like having that childlike faith again where I was kind of carefree and um the burdens were off of me you know prior to any trauma coming into my life so I think um you know we can all channel that in some way so remembering the little things are the big things mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super important to note. Um, but unfortunately, there are there are times when, as you mentioned, the trauma just comes back, or you're just having a poor mental health day or week or month. And it sucks because your men- your mental health can affect so many different aspects of your life. Um, especially let's say work life. What what would you suggest doing when your mental health starts bleeding into your work performance? That is a great and difficult question. <laughs> I think because it's so different for everybody. What same thing how like our our self-care plans are kind of tailored to us. But I think an overarching brainstorm for that would be just kind of checking in with yourself and maybe writing down what you're feeling or reaching out to a friend, just being like, I'm not quite like in a bad place, but I'm getting there. So like if I kind of go quiet, can you check in on me or holding yourself accountable um, to, you know, reaching out to a friend or um, at least letting someone in so that if it does continue to progress, that you have that, even if it's not a bunch of people, that you have that one person that you can be like, hey, it's getting worse. Like I could really use some help or maybe it's just, hey, can you be my person to walk me through this? You know, and I think I think people are honored to walk beside us in, you know, just as we would be honored if someone asked us to do the same. So I think just, you know, whether it be writing down or going right to getting help, you know, if you recognize that this is my pattern, I know I go from zero to 90 and I know this could happen pretty quickly, um, getting that courage, whatever it takes to get the help um, or just letting someone in um, that can walk beside you. It's also a lot of, what's the word? Like it's a lot of um, self- kind awareness? of no. yes that's a lot of self-awareness to know kind of how where you're at mentally you know as small as that sounds sometimes you don't know when those days are gonna come they just kind of come to feel it coming is 
super admirable. And I was just going to say, like, even if not that we want to be like working all the time on our healing, like we said, we got to take breaks. But I think having that plan in place, like in a good spot, when you're in a good place as to I know this could like honoring that it could come up. I think I've gotten caught in this sometimes where I am in a good place. So I'm like, nothing bad is ever going to happen again. So like, I'm good. But then like inevitably it does. And then I'm like unprepared for it, even though I've been through so much, kind of humbling ourselves being like the reality that nothing bad is going to happen, you know, is pretty, you know, slim, not to go too deep into that, but just to say like, honor that and say, what is my plan if something you know, starts to not feel right, or I start to, you know, go downhill with my mental health, Um, you know, what would my self-care plan look like now? And again, identifying it that it's going to be different than maybe when you were a kid or a teenager to as an adult now. So just identifying that like plan for yourself, you know, just as you would if you were in therapy, maybe having a safety plan for if you, um, for example, for me, I had a safety plan with my therapist of three people I would call if I felt like Um, self-injuring or cutting so like something like that but that can be it it doesn't have to be so serious it can be like all right if I'm starting to feel like really overwhelmed with being at home during this time um, who am I going to reach out to and what does that look like I think it's a really good point how a lot of people will be honored to walk with your journey with you because I've been on both sides of those calls and I've always felt honored when someone has asked me, it's super important to have those allies by your side. Going off what Genevieve said, I was actually going to hop into the next question and ask, um, how can you talk to your loved ones about your trauma? What are some ways you can discuss triggers you may have so that they can be aware of them? I think just being honest. Um, I think not trying to sugarcoat or hold back. You know, if you're talking to someone who hasn't had trauma in your family or your friends or someone who may have like have a connection to this, the person that hurt you, or you just have to be careful who you talk to, I would preface with that and how you approach it, because it will not always be received well. But knowing going into it, if it is someone who may not receive it well, being prepared for that within yourself, not not having high expectations from that person, but also honoring the fact that your pain is valid and knowing that they may not respond how you want them to respond. Um, But there are going to be people that will. And so for those people who may understand it or are just really great and compassionate and are willing to hear you out, I think just giving specific examples like when I'm feeling this, this happens and giving examples maybe in the past or in the current space that you're in. Um, to help them understand kind of what you need. I think we have a special opportunity when we let people in to let them know what we need rather than just telling them what's happening. You know, so when I disappear and don't call you back or I'm not texting you back, like maybe you could just come over after school one day and just, you know, just show up. Others would say, don't show up, but do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's different ways that we can, you know, and again, this takes, this does take some self-awareness. So if you're not at that place yet, it's okay. Again, because we said healing is not linear. (laughs) Um, So maybe, you know, connecting with a professional to help you get to that Mm -hmm. place, to get to that self-awareness place and to identify, you know, what you need from others and what response you may have wanted, you know, being able to go back to those people that didn't respond well and say I want to try our relationship again but like this is what you said last time that really hurt me or 
this is how you didn't validate my pain and I wanted to try again with you. And Mm -hmm. there are some people that you may never get there with, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if they are connected to the person that hurt you. But um, I think, you know, not giving up can be helpful. Um, But again, also having boundary, clear boundaries, if you've tried a couple times with a person and it just gets worse, I would say it's totally okay to not try again, you know, Um, and to identify that for yourself. And that doesn't mean that you don't love them or care about them. It's just they aren't Um, fueling you right now they're not listening they're not bearing witness to your pain um, and they're not someone you want in your inner circle you know at this time and that doesn't you know that does not mean it has to be forever Um, but I think you know really identifying those people that are along for the ride with you that are going to stand right beside you that are going to listen to you compassionately and something I would say the biggest thing you know for people on the other side who are maybe that listener or that's literally our next question. So someone on the other side of that, who, who has been asked to bear witness to someone's pain, or is that friend that someone goes to or whatever that looks like, or is that parent that their child or their child's friend trusts? Um, you know, there's so many examples of who that could be, but you know, I would say the biggest thing I say is compassionate listening. So like not trying to ha- fix it, you know, because I think most of the time you can't and, you know, no, no amount of love, no amount of therapy, no amount of, you know, that it can't completely fix it and wrap it up in a tight little pretty bow and call it a day, you know? So I think um, not trying to do that because I know that there's been times when people kind of came in with that, like fix it attitude with, with my trauma. And I'm like, you have no idea, like you cannot fix this. So stop trying. And then I would just shut them out. And so I think coming into it with like, more listening than talking sometimes is hear that person out and then maybe respond, but not with that fix it um, answer, but maybe just like, thank you for talking to me and I'm here with you. Simple things. Again, little things are the big things. We've talked about that throughout this. And I think that's so important when someone's trusting you with a painful experience or a memory or um, a situation that we just compassionately listen and don't have to always talk (laughs) you know sometimes (laughs) we can listen more than we talk but there are times where a friend is really asking for advice and I think those are the times that we can talk but other times we just need to sit there and listen and to bear witness um even silently to someone's pain and that's hard I've been I've done that like and it's something I've really had to work on is just just listen don't try to fix it because I'm such a a savior and I want to do it. So I've really tried to work on active listening, but it's hard because you're like, well, I'm going to go beat someone up now, or I'm going to go, you know, you know, if if someone you love is suffering, it's hard to kind of take a step back and just let them feel it. You know what I mean? I think automatically when someone comes up to you and is like, I'm in pain, like this hurts me, you know, as humans, the first things we want to do is just to make it go away, to make it better, but we can't. I think that could be a hard pill to swallow for some people and why they're not always the best allies when you're hurting. If you could go back in time and tell yourself your past self one thing, what would it be? (laughs) Um, So many things, but I think um, what I would say is that there is light at the end of this tunnel and there truly is. I think a lot of people would say that to me, that there was hope at the end, there was possibility at the end, there was light in the darkness at the end, but I didn't believe them, you know, because I was so stuck in the darkness. And I think something else I would say is that there's freedom from your past and that there is a beautiful future ahead. Again, that shifting is uh, 
you know, letting my nine to 11, 12, even younger than that, five or six um, year old self know that there is, there is hope for the future. There's hope on the horizon. There's healing on the horizon and, you know, just to kind of keep on going. And, you know, I think I have done that in a lot of ways, but there were also moments where I didn't think I could go on another minute, but I'm glad that I did. And that's been the biggest thing I want others to know is that there is hope in the darkness and light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. And then I guess this is might be a bit similar, but if you could offer our listeners or anyone listening who identifies with anything you've said, one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say that uh, your story matters, whatever it looks like. I think that's the biggest thing is that we do a lot of comparing, I think, especially if you've been through trauma, like my trauma is worse than yours, or you have no idea because mine's so much worse, you know, or yours is so much worse than mine. Like we go back and forth with that and we stumble and then, you know, there's disunity and then there's like where there should be solidarity. So I think one of the biggest things is just to honor for yourselves and for others that your story matters, whatever it looks like. And whatever your healing journey looks like, although we just said a thousand times that it's not linear, that it matters. And so I think we can receive that for ourselves and give that to others as well. It's not a question, but something I did want to trace back to when we're talking about allyship and coming to people. I think it reminded me of a quote that I actually read in um, Let That Shit Go. Is that not everybody can be that person for you as well? So it's super important to choose the right people. You know what I mean? Sometimes if someone doesn't react well, it doesn't mean they don't love you any less. It just means they're not the right person to deal with a certain. Or they may be going through their own stuff. I mean, there are times that people have brought stuff to me and I'm like, well, I can't handle Mm -hmm. this right now. Yeah. And I would, I would definitely agree with that. I think we talked about that a little bit earlier that, and I also want people to know to not give up I think sometimes we get to one person we stop at them if they didn't respond well I think that's really important what you said that not everybody's going to be equipped to deal with whatever you're facing at any given moment Um, but there there are going to be people you know if you keep you know again you don't want to like tell everybody but you also don't want to stop at one person so finding that nice in between of like who you can trust and who you can you know I have people in my support circle that I go to this person for this thing I go to this person for this thing. I go to this person for this thing. And that can help. I know a lot of times, like I felt like maybe I'm a burden. And when I started to spread out, you know, that kind of, um, you know, I have like stuff with faith. Like I have people for that. I have stuff with like um, growing up in an alcoholic home. You know, I have people for that. You know, I have stuff with my sexual trauma. I have people for that. Some people that can fit in multiple categories, but Um, I think that can be a way to kind of spread the love, receive the love in different ways and to not overwhelm yourself with like, I went to this one person and they didn't respond well, so I'm never talking to anybody. You know, I think that's a really hard place to be and that kind of keeps us in darkness. So I think gathering your your crew of people that will be there um, to bear witness to your pain is crucial. Mel, thank (laughs) you so much for coming on our show. We appreciate this so much. This is definitely one of our more important episodes because while taxes and all that are important, so is your mental health and taking care of yourself. So Mel, is there anything that you want to promote or share with people or talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, I can can throw out a few things that if people wanted to follow my journey ongoing or connect with me at some point, uh, my Instagram handle is xomellyb. And then my pelvic pain healing page is victory over pelvic pain on Instagram. 
And then um, those hashtags as well, you could find hashtag victory over pelvic pain, both on Facebook and Instagram. My name on Facebook is Melanie S. And I also um, do have a WordPress. I haven't updated in a while, but I do have lots of entries from um, prior seasons in my life. So uh, that is xomellyb at wordpress.com. Um, and feel free to reach out to me and I hope we can do a part two. I think it would be a cool to have cool to have a great other would, conversation yeah. with both of you. Absolutely. So. Yeah, we would love yeah. to have you back on. Great. Thank yeah. You so awesome. Much and thank you for sharing your journey with us. Yes. Of course. Very, thank you thank for you. having me. Oh, I almost forgot. Mel, to end the show quickly. What's the most adult thing you've done lately? Laundry. <laughs> <laughs> I love how like girl just got engaged, but laundry. Laundry. <laughs> And I also got engaged. Listen, I'm not used to it yet. Okay, I, know, I got engaged. Okay. I, I got engaged and I did some laundry. So those Amazing. two are great. Okay, awesome. so the most adults. <laughs> All right, <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Society of Grownups. I'm Genevieve. I'm Kathy. And we'll catch you next Monday. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye.